0: This is Voices of CX podcast. Join us as we continue our deep dive into customer value, the driving force behind every successful business. We're making the world a better place by helping companies deliver true customer value, one episode at a time. Hello and welcome back to one more episode of Voices of CX. This is season 10. And today we're going to speak a little bit about behavior science. For those of you who have been following this podcast for a while, you know how passionate about, I am about this topic. I read the books, I listen to the podcasts, the works. So personally, I'm very excited. But before I get too carried away, I'm going to allow our guest to introduce herself. Kristen, please tell everybody who you are, what you love, what you're passionate about, and what you do as a regular day job.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I'm a behavioral scientist, which means I study human behavior. Um, Many times, this is why we make the decisions we do. And um, more interestingly, the mistakes that we make. Um, So how we go about life and use um, decision aids, heuristics to to make decisions. Um, And I'm super passionate about applying these insights to the product world. So taking all the insights from behavior change research uh, and helping product teams from marketers, designers, engineers, researchers apply those to drive and design better products that help uh, your customers uh, do the
0: thing that you, you, they came to you for. Yeah, that's awesome because, you know, I am kind of obsessed with behavior science, but what you do is you, you take those concepts and you apply them to businesses, to help businesses do better. And I think that that's the coolest part. And it's what I'm most eager to find out today is how you do that, how you use behavior science to get a deeper understanding about, and I'm gonna paraphrase here, but (laughs) what people do and not what they say. And being able to know how to shape your products, your marketing, your operations, to to truly help shift and shape behavior, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, to accomplish, um, perhaps create value for everyone involved. Is is that about right? There, how am I how am I doing? Exactly. Yep. So so basically, one th- theory
1: in behavioral science, and maybe a, a, a known truth, is that we say the environment drives our decision making. And what mm-hmm. this means is like, and I have a personal example is that I I love M and M's. So my attitude, my preference towards M&Ms anytime during the day, by the way, is exceptionally high. Um, But yet what would drive me to eat or not eat them may be the environment. So if the M&Ms are in a jar that's transparent, I would eat more than if it's not transparent. If the lid is on, I would eat more than if it isn't or less than if it isn't. If other people are eating M&Ms, I would eat more. If other people are not, I would eat less all these things change my behavior, but my attitude, preference, and belief towards the M&Ms hasn't changed. And so as behavioral scientists, we basically study the environment. We study the situation, the context that you, your customers, your users are in, and then try to understand that as a lever to behavior change, maybe more so than, you know, the typical tools like interviews, focus groups, um, we really start with understanding the context in the environment. And basically the, the really exciting piece here is that as designers, product managers, researchers, there's you have a lot of power to change behavior yes. because you are designing the environment. You are yes. the context that people are, are experiencing. And so obviously with great power comes great responsibility. And so mm-hmm. we help teams um, understand the context in order to, to help their users succeed.
0: Yeah. Um, this question is a little bit premature, but since you brought it up, I'm going to go with it. I remember when I had Nerial on this podcast and he was talking about some backlash that he received when he put out his first book, Hooked, um, because his intention was not at all to create unhealthy and toxic habits in users. And that's kind of what his material was used for in many ways to create addictive technology. And so there are dark patterns when that can be created when you have access to the human brain and what makes us tick. What is it that you do to ensure that that, that doesn't happen with your work?
1: Yeah, so for our for Rational Labs, um, you know, we started as a nonprofit out of Duke University with Dan Ariely. Um, and so we are really kind of founded with the idea of we are driving behavior change for, we say things that are easy for us to do, Um, in the short term, but long for us in the long term. So, you know, eating good, it's very, it's something we all want, saving money we all want, having more time we all want, and very difficult for us to do in the short term. So we focus on those types of behaviors um, and we actually turn down any company or team that we don't feel meets that type of criteria. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for us, we're designing our own incentive model to drive to the customer outcome and the behavior you know, the the world is complex. And so this always is, you know, it could be a debate internally, but um, more often than not, it's pretty clear um, that we're, you know, if you want to design for the customer outcome, what uh, it's clear Mm -hmm. if if you're, if you're getting there or not.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, let's go into talking about the method that you guys use at Rational Labs, which is behavior design. Right. Tell me a little bit about behavior design and, and, and how you use this to help companies achieve their goals. Great.
1: Yeah, so, so basically behavior design really is taking what, what I mentioned before, is how do you study the environment of decision-making? How do you study what people do versus what they say? And for us, it all starts with what we call a behavioral diagnosis, where we map out every single step that somebody takes to get to the behavior. So I'll unpack that a little bit. Basically first you have to pick the behavior that you want to change. And I think this is probably one of the most overlooked um, and you know, if I could give teams one mandate from listening to this it would be to go and get in a room for 90 minutes with your team and debate the actual behavior that you think your customer should be doing. What we find is people don't talk about this as much as active use or retention or other outcome metrics um, and they don't get specific enough about this. Um, what we mean by that is like getting basically very specific about this, the thing you want someone to do, let's say after they log in. So if I'm Peloton, it's not enough for me to say, I want my user to work out, you know, Mm -hmm. that's great. But like, when, how long, with what instructor? And so we would just make that, we call uncomfortably specific and say within seven days of starting Peloton, A new user should work to do two 10 minute workouts with two different instructors. Now, that is uncomfortably specific, and you will debate internally if that's the correct behavior. But by not declaring it, you actually, it's much harder to to do designs and to do any behavior change. So, the first step in behavioral design, and maybe this shouldn't be a surprise because it's called behavioral economics, behavioral science, but it's declaring your key behavior. And and I would say this is a hypothesis because your key behavior is supposed to drive your outcome, which could be active use or retention. And so teams should think about this like a hypothesis. You know, if Peloton had me do two workouts within seven days, does this drive some sort of of retention or customer satisfaction? That's really the first step. I'll continue, the second step then is, is, uh, is really the diagnosis. What this looks like is mapping out every single step that it takes to get to now this key behavior. And we find that this outside of anything else teams could do just has m- crazy light bulbs. Because if you start mapping out the steps that it takes to get to this behavior, you'll find out, wow, that's a really hard thing for somebody to do. Do they actually know, uh, you know what to do next? Uh, And and you'll have kind of these light bulbs outside of even adding on a psychology to it. Um, And this, we say, is like a journey map on steroids. We're not adding any emotion, uh, you know, bubbles to this. It's really studying what people do, but, you know, we'll produce like 300 page slide decks for one simple flow, because those are the types, that's the steps that people actually have to go through. And then the third part here is is mapping on the psychology. So basically saying, well, what at each step is driving your user? And there's hundreds of biases and heuristics out there. And our team has simplified this world of biases and heuristics to basically what we say is the three Bs. And so it's what is the behavior you want to change? Then the second two Bs is reducing barriers to get to that behavior. And locked up in that one is cognitive overload, you know you could say in inform- tons of other things information aversion optimism bias things that actually would prevent you a barrier cognitively and logistically to do the thing and then there's benefits and i'll come back to to both of these but the benefits is basically creating an immediate benefit for your user to do the thing to do the behavior um, we are all present bias you know we scroll even though we should be doing work uh and so we react to immediate benefits and so After you've laid out all of these steps in this behavioral diagnosis, you label these things like these barriers and these benefits. Um, and you, these are the psychologies that you're layering on. So it's a long process This behavioral design. It's not, (laughs) uh, it's not for the lighthearted. Um, but what it does is create all these light bulbs into how your users are actually behaving, which can then unlock product innovations.
0: I'm here thinking if, you know, if, if, if part of uh, the, the model is to be ultra specific, then how many different maps would you need to have? How many different diagnoses would you need to have, especially working with a large organization that has multiple you know, um, touch points with their customers and multiple channels? It, it sounds to me like a massive undertaking. How long does this take on average? Yeah. So when
1: you get good at it, it takes much less time because okay. you understand, you know, the scope. But I, I think it's it's a really nice insight. That it, one of the things our teams, when we're doing consulting, we work on narrowing the problem and defining mm-hmm. the diagnosis that we're going to do because there are so many flows that you can attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things is just calling out what is the behavior that that you want to change, and then that flow can get wildly easier. So for Peloton example, it's like, it's for new users, you Mm -hmm. know, so we are going to outline a new user flow here. We are not going to talk about existing users logging into the product, trying to find the 10 minute workouts. Right. Um, So I think some of that is, is just scope defining. Uh, And and other things is, is just attention to detail. Like these, you should have these screens and be able to pop them into a deck and look at them uh, pretty quickly. And you know, the alternative here is talking to 10 users, five or 10 users to, to right. influence you. And that actually takes a really long time too. Yeah, uh, You know, we, we basically, if I could lock a designer, a researcher in a room for a day and, and say, I, would you have them interview people or read a literature review and do a diagnosis? I would have them do a literature review and diagnosis. Like you're yeah. getting a lot more bang for your buck when you're looking at the, Um, the existing literature on a topic, as well as understanding the environment of decision-making. Your five to 10 users, there's just a ton of variance there. Um, And you'll get insights on their attitudes, their preferences and their beliefs, but you may not get to the predictive value of what they would
0: actually do in a situation. Right. That's, that was going to be my follow-up question. How, how do you do this diagnosis if you're not doing any qualitative research? You know, if, if your idea is to focus on behavior and not what customers declare, then how do you have someone shadowing them? Um, what, what, what's the method to be able to perform these diagnoses? I mean, I would understand in a digital setting, where you have all of these things that you can track or on a platform or on an app etc but when that translates into in real life behavior how, how do you do it
1: yeah so first from the digital standpoint this is exactly right you do have a ton of data about what people mm-hmm. are actually doing yeah. um, and so we layer that data of what you know how many people are on this page using this feature um to how long do they spend on the page right mm-hmm. uh, like bounce rates, et cetera. And so there's a ton of information locked up in there. What's mm-hmm. your biggest drop-off moment, especially if it's a conversion sign-off flow? The These data exist and you layer it on to understand where you should be focused in this diagnosis. For um, more uh, offline behavior and for new products where there isn't an online behavior, a lot mm-hmm. of what we do is basically kind of have a best guess. And then we understand, because most topics have been studied before. Like very rarely are we coming at it with zero information. And so we would basically have a best guess and then go, go verify. And when we're interviewing Mm -hmm. customers in this case, we're not asking them for their attitudes, preferences, or beliefs. We're asking them about their behavior. So Mm -hmm. our team went to um, a city in California that was kind of fairly low income, low SES. And we went into homes and had them open their refrigerators. We had them give us a tour of their homes, and we could then Mm -hmm. see what they were actually spending money on. For a few, they were able to open up their bank accounts and we just had them show us what they would Mm -hmm. spend money on. So there are ways to get at what people do versus what they say and and then use that to inform your actual um, diagnosis.
0: For your company to succeed, customers need to find value in what you deliver. But companies and customers don't always see eye-to-eye on what's behind customers' perception of value. Worthix is the customer value alignment platform, helping companies like yours understand what really moves the needle for customers and your business. So you can do more of what matters and less of what doesn't. Visit worthix.com to learn more or request a demo. Discover your worth with Worthix. Is there any sort of science behind that, that correlates what people say with what they do? So, for instance, sometimes people say X and they do Y. But is there any when people say A, they actually do B? Is that is that something well, that's been that's interesting? I, I think maybe the closest
1: to this would be some like social desirability bias mm-hmm. where Many times, if you understand what the social norm is, people mm-hmm. will report to be closer to the social norm. So one idea is asking people what they think the social norm is in an environment, okay. uh, you know, what is socially acceptable. And then you'll know right. that that is their bias to report their own behavior closer mm-hmm. to that norm. But, you know, I'll give you, we did work with One Medical recently um, around increasing conversion to their... Um, to their, uh, basically using one medical. And so the first question our team had to answer was like, well, what is the behavior that we want to change in this? And after a workshop with their team, we landed on actually was getting a doctor's appointment right after signing up. One medical is around helping people get care when they need it. And it's very likely that if you use one medical and six months later, you, you have a fever, do you give one medical a call? Well, Maybe, right. but you probably will give your doctor a call that you used before because of status quo bias, right? Yes. So we have to do a really good job right in the beginning of signing up for One Medical to help people understand and really internalize that One Medical can be the person that they call when they're sick. Yeah. And so we that was the key behavior. And we looked at, did a behavioral diagnosis of their onboarding flow and figured out that actually it's very difficult to to get a doctor's appointment right away. You would have to look for a provider that you like. You would have to pick out a time. You'd have to know what One Medical is because yes. you know you have to know the mental model of how it can help you. Uh, and so we tried to re- do the second B, which is just reducing barriers to do that. And and very simply, we asked people a few questions about their health to figure out what they would actually see a doctor about. We then recommended one provider, um, You know, gave them the reason why we recommended this provider, recommended them a few time slots the next day that they could sign up for that were like 20 minute virtual appointments. Very easy. You're not having to commute somewhere to do this. Uh, and then, you know, ask them if, if they want to make an appointment and uh, we increased bookings by 20% by doing that. Um, and this is kind of, this is the formula, right? You basically set a behavior, you reduce barriers um, and, and you're trying to then experiment. And by the way, that's some of the punchline is we don't just do these things. We experiment right? and, and try to do them. Um, and, and, People wouldn't have said, look, uh, I'd like you to put the the onboarding in the onboarding flow. I'd like you to ask me to set up an appointment like, you know, an interview is just not going to get you there. But understanding the barriers, the psychological barriers to setting one up and then trying to reduce those barriers, you know, can can help you get there.
0: So it's it's kind of like putting the M&Ms in a clear jar.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like like you want people to eat them. Yeah, you put them in a clear jar. And if you you don't don't want people to eat them, you move them farther away.
0: (laughs) Hide them in the top shelf inside a dark container.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and and I think this is one thing that that teams can take away is is if you figure out your key behavior, you know, what are the barriers to, to doing this? And the barriers, as mentioned before, there's kind of two types. One is logistical, which is just steps you know so an open text field that's a barrier it's a logistical step and then there's cognitive barriers and those are um so for instance if i was a lift pm a logistical barrier would be waiting for the lift
0: yes <laughs> but, you know you have
1: to wait 5 minutes and and like you may not want to spend that time mm. uh, and then the cognitive barrier would be the uncertainty on if it's going to come like is it going to be 5 minutes is it going to be 7 do i have to walk somewhere where do i go and in that time You know, you may open Uber. And and so Lyft in their, you know, identification of barriers would think about logistical and cognitive and then try to figure out how to reduce those two, two things.
0: Yeah. Now, a question on an entirely operational standpoint here. How often do you find that you're able to diagnose what the issue is? And when you present this to the organization, for you it's as clear as day. You know, you must do X in order to solve this issue, and the company says, "Yeah, well, we're not actually going to do that," or "No, that doesn't actually go along with our roadmap." Is is that something that you encounter at times? Sometimes, yeah. I
1: think one one thing we one barrier we've had in getting adoption is, you know. It's very easy when you hear a customer say something to believe that customer. So if I can show mm-hmm. you one customer saying, "I have a pain point here," you know, I just couldn't find the right provider for me, if I, a right doctor for me. We call this identifiable victim effect, where you know one person, one experience can really impact somebody more than perhaps stats or data. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are affected by the emotion, and so. We as behavioral scientists are mostly using kind of psychologies, academic research, um, prior RCTs to drive the decision-making, which isn't as powerful as one story of a customer. Right. So our challenge, you know, is to make those studies come alive, to be more convincing about the the insight, um, to compete with the, you know, one customer that says one thing that everyone uses as kind of the internal narrative about yeah, what's going on.
0: Absolutely. You know, that's I read a blog post that you wrote. I think it was you. It was either you or someone on your team that talked about measuring the right thing, and about how a lot of times what truly matters is what we're measuring and how we're measuring it. Right. One thing that we see really often in this market is that companies focus a lot. On specific metrics like customer satisfaction, for instance, or they focus on you know which smiley face or you know smiley to frowny face scale customers are hitting um, when they're leaving um, the store, and and lots of times companies are actually measuring the wrong thing or they're measuring the right thing, but that's not truly what's influencing and affecting the behaviors and the decisions, right? So I, is this a barrier for, for your company and what you do, where companies end up focusing so much on these metrics, like you said, focusing on what customers are saying, and they give it so much weight and so much value that they overlook what ultimately is driving the decision.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely is. Um, I'll tell you one quick. In we did an experiment with TikTok where we reduced misinformation shares, so people who were mm-hmm. clicking to share misinformation after you saw a video by twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And um, but the real insight here was that we had pre asked people about the intervention that we were about to launch. So we got a sample from Prolific, which is a kind of a a survey platform you can ask people questions. And we showed them the label that we were going to put out, um, the same label that reduced, uh, sorry, it's 24% reduced by 24% shares. And we showed them this label and asked them for their intuition on would this change their behavior? Would this decrease their shares? And uh, people said, absolutely not. (laughs) The label would not work on me. And so, you know, our intuition about this is just so, so off um, about mm-hmm. our our behavior changes. There's kind of two. Re- One is effective forecasting, where we don't really understand our future emotional states. We don't understand that, you know, in the future, kind of the classic is, you know, if you're not hungry going to the grocery store, you may not buy things. If you are hungry, you may buy things. You don't really understand your future state may be hungry or not hungry. You're buying for your current state. Right. Um, and so customers have this effective forecasting problem where we don't really understand our future emotional states enough to be kind of accurate uh, in, in predicting this. So for sure, um, these types of decision errors come up. And then our team's job is to help kind of present out different methods to show them that they're incorrect. Another example, we worked with one team. We're trying to remove this open text field and the open text field was asking a very easy, perceptually easy question, which is kind of describe your small business. And now these are small business owners. Of course, they can describe their business. It shouldn't be a hard question. Um, and yet, they, it, like, it takes some time, you know, it takes. And so we told these engineers, like, look, uh, we should remove this this form, uh, those fields. And they said, no, it's not that hard. Uh, so I did a quick survey and, and study and, and showed that it took 40 seconds to enter this information if you it as an open text field. And people could actually answer the question within less than four seconds, if it was a drop down, a bulleted list, any kind of giving, you know, an easier answer. Uh, and by doing that, then the engineering team saw that, oh, that, that does have friction, I didn't see it. So, you know, our team goes through kind of interesting pre-testing methods to try to de-risk some of these solutions that show this behavioral insight, because obviously it is costly to, to test and product uh, these things, and but we use more of a quantitative method, again, that studies what people do versus what they say. Finally, engineer the engineering team did remove the open text field and page over page conversion actually increased uh, over over
0: 40%. If you've got feedback for the show, questions or ideas of what you want us to cover, or if you want to be a voice of CX yourself, we'd love to hear it. Send your feedback to contact at voicesofcx.com and tell us everything. Honest opinions, no holds barred. Yeah, it's interesting what you said. I remember hearing, I think, Angela Duckworth saying that the humans are terrible at predicting the future. Like we have, you know, like a a good idea, a simple example of this is, you know, when women go into labor and it's horrible and it's just pain and suffering and absolutely atrocious. And in the moment you're like, never again. Why would I, you know, and then you know, there you are two years later. Oh, let's have another baby. Um yeah. <laughs> by the way, I,
1: I just had a I have a four-month-old now, so I just experienced this. It was a natural birth. And I did have my my friend is a labor and delivery nurse, so she came down to be my doula. She decided She understood me well enough to know that I would appreciate she voice recorded me screaming. Uh, (laughs) So now I have this to play back and I can listen to it later and be like, it was really, really, really terrible. And I can't I can't forget now.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I, I know that this is a self-preservation mechanism where the brain basically erases pain because it knows that we can't handle it, you know. So even though we remember that we had pain, we don't remember what it feels like. You know, I, I recently had to undergo an appendectomy because I had appendicitis. And I remember I remember being in so much pain and suffering for so long but when I try to recall what the pain felt like, or even how much time, my my brain can't really process the amount of time that I was in pain for. I just have this memory that it was traumatic, but that's it, you know. So it's not like I'm like, oh yeah, I, I could I could do appendicitis again. But truly, it's not something that haunts me, and it's pretty magnificent that the brain does that, and it does it for so many other things, you know. Now, but my question for you is that like. You see, we're talking about this. We we know it exists. We know it's a thing. Your friend recorded you screaming. So you actually have physical evidence of that pain so that you don't forget. But I think it was Kahneman who said that just because you're aware of a bias, it doesn't make you immune to it. So even though you're a behavioral scientist, you know this so well, you're still not immune to these basic traits of, of our human nature. So how do we truly change behavior if we're wired not to?
1: Yeah. So, so I think it is, it is definitely true that that I am subject to the same psychologies and biases that, that everyone else is despite me knowing about them. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of this happens for when we're in a hot state or we're making quick decisions. The one opportunity to impact, you know, if I were to say, I want to overcome some of these biases or psychologies is to make a one-time decision about a bigger decision. So for instance, you know, if I know that it's better to get three quotes and I'm trying to get a mortgage loan, Mm -hmm. my bias may be to quickly decide, but this is a big decision. I'm not, I'm not, I'm going slower than I would if I'm like picking out something in a grocery store or I'm looking at an ad and so, the real opportunity for you to personally change your behavior is thinking about big decisions when you're going in a slow fashion. And you can say, I am actually going to get three quotes to do this mortgage loan. And what, by the way, everyone should get multiple quotes for any kind of <laughs> lending. And, and because if you get one quote, you'll say, Oh, that's interesting. It uh, looks good. Let's go. If you get three quotes now, you have a, a relativity understanding of what the market is, and you can make the, the better decision. You're not going to get one quote and then sequentially get another quote after you see it. It's really about getting the three at the same time. Anyway, so the the opportunity is to think about what are these one time decisions that can change your behavior, and usually these are bigger decisions. You know, marriage, kids, job transition, big purchases um, that that people can hack. And actually, that's probably a market opportunity is to help people with these big decisions because they are
0: going slower. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone should absolutely get three quotes before they decide to get married. Just, yeah. just a no. benchmark, just to general, yeah. just,
1: check the, just check the market.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, but that's, that, that's really, it's really great. What, what else, what else, what can companies do essentially when they understand that customers have fixed or set behavior that's somehow creating a barrier Um, For their value proposition. This, of course, we're talking all um, no, no dark patterns here, but in, in a positive way, how can we design experiences that promote positive behavior?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does come down to to what I meant—the three B's before—and and uh-huh. I think people think this is oversimplifying the world, the behavior change. But at some level, these are kind of the tenants. I'll give you a, a personal example. You know, I'm—I um, live with 14 other people. Uh, why would somebody do this? Why? Um, if, why would somebody, I'm so, somebody do this? And so, uh, but if you understand a driver, a core driver of happiness, it's other people social support this is consistently the number one driver of happiness in, in world happiness reports is is social support or basically quality friendships and so if you say well i want to reduce barriers to quality friendships what would you do you would basically not move far away from your friends you would not move in the suburbs you would not prioritize white picket fences and countertops you would move closer to your friends surround yourself by people that you like and enjoy and design your life for friendships and so basically any big or small problem, you can use this kind of 3B framework to help solve. Whether you're internal at a company and you want to get people to do their time cards, or you want to like design your roadmap uh, input process a little bit differently so that people actually give you input, you could use the 3Bs, you know, as a starting point to really help you know identify the behavior you want to change reduce barriers increase benefits to get to the thing that people are are not intending to not give you feedback on your roadmap or not intending to not enter their hours and i think when we start assuming that people have this intention this attitude preference or belief not to do this then you try to solve that attitude preference or belief and in behavioral science we go basically back to the environment we design the environment and, and not assume that it's intention, you know, a focus here that people just don't want to do the thing.
0: Yeah. Would you say that it could be interesting to work backwards with those three B's? So start with the benefits and then try to move Yeah, and actually
1: for, for new products, um, for existing products that already have uh, you know, a flow, starting with the barriers does is like the biggest win because people won't do something if there's a lot of friction. You know, sure, we're gonna wait in a la- long line. If you're in San Francisco, you may wait in a long line for tartine for a high benefit, but very rarely do we do a lot of, of friction for, for the benefit. So if you're an existing product and want big wins, it's about reducing barriers. If you're a new product and then increasing benefits, if you're a new product, you really want to design what is the immediate benefit that somebody could get from using you, um, and and that imme- it's not about a future benefit. It's a, it's the immediate. If actually, if, if listeners want to entertain themselves, you can go to Netflix, search Jerry Seinfeld um, mattress uh, June Guy um, or Night Guy and Morning Guy, and there's a lovely clip about Jerry Seinfeld describing present bias in a way that is more funny than than, than I could I could describe here. <laughs> Uh, But the idea really is we have to solve for the person who's scrolling on Netflix all the time because that's who we're competing with. And so if you're designing a product that helps people far in the future, save money, eat less, call your mother more, all these things are important, but they're not going to help me do something different today. And so we really have to help people do the thing today because they have so many things competing for their attention, uh, and your benefit needs
0: to be high enough to fit into that, into that to-do list. That's brilliant. So it's for now designed for now.
1: Yeah. You know, Peloton, they could say, look, you're going to have less diabetes, less risk of heart disease. This is not what they do. They have an instructors shout out to you during, during Peloton, right? If you've used Peloton, they call you out and say, congratulations on your hundred ride. Um, Or they have streaks to help keep you going, you know, one day to the next. Wordle is very nice for this. simple things that kind of give us an immediate benefit. Uh, You know, obviously Wordle probably also improves my vocabulary and my grammar. But look, they're not promoting that. They're just giving me a streak. And so we have to figure out a way to fit into somebody's today life.
0: Yeah. And it can be minimal and not have any sort of tangible reward whatsoever. It's just some almost a badge, which is why gamification tends to work so well for so many different things, right? It's just, like you said, it's a a streak. It's a, you know, you have an Apple watch, and you close a circle, and it's like, oh, that changed nothing, but people are still fighting to get those extra steps. And I have a friend who sometimes goes on a walk at nine p.m. just so that he can close the circle, you know. And yeah. it, it works so well. And on on some people, some people are are very very prone to to use these these little mental rewards as. And I as would a- say. Yes, sometimes
1: it's some people and it, we're different people in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So some gamification may work on me in one context and may not work on me in another. And so that's right. a little bit of the thing that behavioral science tends to add, too, is like we look at people's mindset and their context to see if it's going to, quote unquote, work on them. Like social norms don't work on me. If you were to say most behavioral scientists do X, I'd be like, look, I'm a, I am ai don't need to have social norms to show what most behavioral scientists do. This is just not going to work on me. I, my fashion sense is, is pathetic. And so if you're saying most people wear these shoes, I would pay attention. I'd say, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know. Thank you so much. Uh, and so, you know, it's not that social norms work or don't work on somebody. It's the context that they are in that would determine that.
0: Yeah. That's really great. Well, you know, I, this has been a wonderful conversation, I wish we could keep going, but you know, if, if people out there who are listening, are taking interest in, in your work and they feel that they could benefit from having a conversation with you. Um, what can they do? Yeah, the move would be to go to irrationallabs.com.
1: We've got tons of things on Irrational Labs. Um, I would recommend setting up for the newsletter. So we just published kind of our recent case studies, which are our fun looks inside companies and, and the work that we do. Uh, we have a boot camp that's a self paced eight week boot camp that will kind of teach you the three Bs, the diagnosis, all these psychologies, uh, and, and you can bring them back to your team and, and we have a Slack group and intro calls and the office hours within that boot camp. Um, and then of course we love to work with companies solving hard problems. So if your company's working on a, a behavior change problem, whether it be you know from the tactics of, of Conversion and retention to the the end goal of behavior change. Uh, if you're working on a hard problem, um, we would love we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and you know, behavior and, and change in psychology is is exciting, and everyone can kind of learn about it. It's, it's something that you know applies to us and our customers. So uh, it, it's it gives a lot of gifts once you understand the science.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, and I would personally recommend um, the way I get a lot of value out of rational labs, which is just the blog. I read it as often as possible. And I'm fascinated by it. So thank you so much, Kristen, for being here today. It's It's been amazing for me to have you on the show. And I hope that all our viewers and listeners were able to learn something new, and perhaps just generate a little bit of curiosity that sometimes uh, understanding the motivation behind decisions goes beyond what people tend to think it is. So thank you so much. It was, it was great to have you on. Great to be here. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Voices of CX podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Worthix. Discover your worth with the customer value alignment platform. We're helping the world's biggest brands align with their true customer value. Learn more at Worthix.com. Episodes are produced and edited by myself, Steve Barry, and Ashley Alufahai.